This is the Redemption Church Podcast. For a list of messages, events, and more, please visit experienceredemption.com. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Here is today's message. All right. So if you got a Bible, you can open it up. We are in Isaiah chapter 59. We are in week three of a series entitled Two Truths and a Lie. And what we're doing is we're studying this uh, incredible chapter in Isaiah 59 right before the uh, Israelites are deported uh, over to Babylon. And the, the country, the nation, the culture, whatever word you want to use, it has fallen apart. And Isaiah 59, 14 through 15 is uh, the, the key verse here in the chapter. I preached on that in week one. And Isaiah 59 says uh, these words, Isaiah 59, 14 through 15. It says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That is the situation of the world that we live in today. We talked about the solution two weeks ago, and that's the power of the gospel. Uh, Jesus Christ changing lives. Last week, we talked about what precedes the fallen culture. What happens first is this, the, the church fails first. And so I preached on that last week. And by the church failing first, I mean uh, those who profess faith in Christ. The, uh, at one time in our nation, that was 70, 80 percent, right? And, uh, and how is it that a nation that has that many people professing faith in Christ uh, can fall in this way? How is it that Israel, who was the stated children of God, how could they fall like this? Well, the church fails first. So I preached through that last week. Today, we're going to look at what happens next, and we're going to see it right here in these five verses, and that is this. Uh, once the church fails, culture implodes. Uh, culture just implodes. And so we're going to see how it is culture implodes. Uh, this morning, we're actually going to get to look in a little bit and see the devil's playbook. Uh, so like, imagine uh, like in a sport, if you uh, were facing a team that you could never beat, and then your strategy was to send somebody out to steal their signs, maybe, or their playbook, and that would give you an advantage, okay? So, completely hypothetical, just that might be helpful, right, in, in playing. Well, what happens here is we get to look in to the devil's playbook. We, we get to see how he operates and how he acts, and so... This morning, um, I want to show four things, four things uh, that are a complete contrast between the corrupt culture, Satan's playbook, and the kingdom culture, God's playbook. And one of the lies that exists in our world is this, is that there's no difference. There's no difference between being a Christian or not being a Christian. Uh, there's no difference between God's playbook and Satan's playbook, uh, right? Another lie that's tied to that is this, that, uh, that we can create some kind of neutral territory, some kind of neutral ground. We'll see that there is no neutral culture. There is a culture that is built on the kingdom of God, or there's a culture that is built on the kingdom of the devil. The, the, there is no neutral. There's no middle ground. And there's two playbooks that are always operating, Satan's or God's. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at four different contrasts right here in Isaiah chapter 59. And, and so what we'll do is we'll contrast them. Uh, we'll show this is Satan's playbook as it's written in Isaiah 59. And then I'll have to go to other parts of the Word of God to show us, no, this is God's playbook. Uh, that is completely different. And I would say this, this is applicable uh, as a nation or in a corporate setting, but then this is also applicable individually. Uh, and so you and I in our own lives, how are we going to build our lives? Are we going to build it off of Satan's playbook or are we going to build it off of God's playbook? And even as followers of Christ, sometimes we get caught up in the lies of the enemy and we begin to build our lives uh, and we begin to build the foundation for how we're going to think and operate off of the devil's playbook. And so when we do that, we've got to be corrected, we've got to be reminded, uh, and then we've got to quickly adjust back in to God's territory. Let's look at the first one here. It's in verse 4 of Isaiah 59. It says, No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. I preached on this a couple weeks ago, how when the enemy's trying to take over a territory, the first thing he does is he destroys the justice system. And then it says this, they rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. Who's they here? The they he is referring to here now is the culture. And, uh, and, and, and I summarized this over the last couple of weeks like this. They're lying. They're lying. That, that what the enemy does uh, is the enemy lies. And I'll show you why the enemy lies, but that's the strategy. It says they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Uh, this reminds us of the passage in James that talks about how sin starts in the heart and then it grows and it grows and it grows. And uh, this is true, by the way, of us individually, uh, that when we catch that sin is like birthing in our heart, like that, that root of anger, uh, that root of bitterness, uh, the mind starting to go crazy, like I want to get angry at him, I want to get angry at her, right? It starts in the mind and then it grows and it grows and it grows. And what we're going to see here in Isaiah 59, 4 through 8 is we're going to see how uh, Satan's strategy starts small and then it grows and it grows and it grows. And there's a parable in the New Testament that tells us that the kingdom of God is the opposite. It can start as small as a what? A mustard seed. It can start as small as a mustard seed and grow and grow and grow. And when the kingdom of God plants itself in the human heart, then it can grow and grow and grow. And it leads to life and joy and peace. But the same is true, he's saying right here. The same is true of Satan's playbook. And what I'll do is I'll plant a lie. He says it this way. They will rely on empty pleas. That is the first lie of, uh, of the culture. It's the first lie of Satan's playbook. It says they will rely on empty pleas. The idea there of rely on empty pleas, another translation says this. They will place their trust in confusion. They will place their trust in confusion. And the idea of rely there uh, is twofold. One, that is what they will build their foundation on. And so uh, Satan's playbook is built on a foundation of confusion and deceit. The other idea of rely on is this, that it will be their strategy. It'll be their tactic. And so um, they'll build a foundation on lies and deceit. And then as they try to take ground, they will use de uh, deception and they will use distraction and they will use ambiguity uh, in order to advance their agenda. And in the corrupt culture, in the fallen cult culture, one of the ways you identify it is it's easy to look in and go, they're lying. This isn't true. I, I mentioned this um, I think last week, uh, that every ad I've seen thus far on issue one has been an absolute lie. 
Now, maybe there's one out there that has an ounce of truth in it. I haven't seen it yet, uh, whether it's been digital uh, or print or airwave, whatever it might be, absolutely rooted in lies. Uh, if, if you want, doesn't pass, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen. And you know what the result is? I talk to well-meaning followers of Christ. I'll have a conversation with them and go, yeah, I'm just really confused on what to do. I heard a bunch of issue one ads, and it talks about uh, freedom, and it talks about liberty, and it talks about faith, and it talks about getting the government off my back, and I'm really for those things. Yeah, and they're lying. They're lying. It's deception. It's, it's, a, it's a platform of deception, and it's a tactic of deception. And then the enemy loves to uh, use this. We talked about this a little bit last week. The enemy loves to use this then even within the context of the body of Christ. And now what we're seeing today, right, is the same lies of the enemy have permeated the church. And now you have people, we talked about this from the Jeremiah passage a couple weeks ago. You have people who under the name of Christ who are purporting the same lies. Now, we have to ask ourselves, where does this come from? This type of building a foundation on lies, this type of using lies as a strategy, where does it come from? Well, Jesus makes it really, really clear where it comes from in John chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip over to John chapter 8, verse 44 through 45, and here's what we're going to see. There are only two foundations, there are only two strategies, and there are only two types of people. That's it. And here it is. And, and one of the lies, by the way, is that there's a third type, a middle ground. There is no middle ground. John 8, 44 through 45. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Remember, a couple weeks ago, I talked about Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, we are supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Why? So that we might learn and be able to discern what God's will is. In other words, we need to be changed out of our old self because our old self was not capable of doing the will of God. And so our hearts and our minds need to be changed so that we can now do the will of God. Proceeding doing the will of God, what were we doing? Jesus would say this. He's saying, you are doing the will of your father. Well, who's their father? <laughs> you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Sounds like what? Isaiah 55, 14. There is no truth, or 59, 14. There is no truth in, this, in the public squares. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Then Jesus goes on to say this. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me, or you do not embrace me. You, you do not enter into my way because I'm telling the truth. What's he saying? He's saying there are two ways to operate in the world. There are two ways to form a, a foundation for a culture. There are two ways to form a foundation for your life. You are either of your father, the devil, or you are of your father, the Lord. And if you're of your father, the Lord, then you are about truth. You are into truth. You build a foundation on truth. Or you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do his will, which is to lie and to destroy. 
Now, some of you may ask, well, um, but isn't there like a middle ground, Stephen? Isn't there like, a, haven't we seen like, like these cultures that, that kind of exist in the middle? No, here's what you see. You either see cultures that are on the rise because the word of God and the, and the power of God uh, is working its way through a nation or a culture. We call these times of revival, right? Or you see it on the decline, but not yet fully there. Or you see completely fallen cultures. They're, they're not a middle ground. What might be perceived as a middle ground is a moment when a culture is either rising into godliness or when it's declining in godliness and you see both present at once. And it might appear to be like it's some kind of neutral thing, but, it, but it's just the crossing. And so even in our nation, 10, 15, 20, 30 years right, ago, right, we would look in and we would say, well, it does seem like it's kind of neutral, right? Like there's still a lot of godliness and, there's, uh, and then there's a lot of, there's some decay that we're seeing in. No, what were we seeing? We were seeing the early signs of, uh, of emerging into a post-Christian nation. You said, well, what does this look like in 20 years? Go look at Europe, right? That's what you, the decline settles in. What does this look like in 200 or 2,000 years? <laughs> Go look in Palestine. That's what it looks like, right? Where there is no godliness then, where there is no godliness then, evil will ramp up. It's like a, right, you say ships crossing or whatever, right? Uh, a reverse is happening there. And, and so um, what will the, the post-Christian uh, or what will the corrupt culture do? It will build its foundation. It will rely on empty pleas, confusion, and lies. What about the Christian nation? What about the Christian person? What about the follower of Christ? What do we do? Well, uh, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah uh, chapter 55, just a couple of chapters before uh, 59 here. So if you've got your Bible, Isaiah 55, uh, what verses? 10 and 11. He says, this is how the Christian does. He says, for as the rain and the snow come. And here in Northwest Ohio, we see that in October apparently, right? Wasn't that awesome? Amen. The rain and the snow come down from heaven, right? And they do not return there, but they water the earth. Now, this would be kind of cool, right? If, if it rained and it snowed and then it hit and the rain and snow got done and they're like, you guys done? You done? You ready? Yeah, let's go home. And then it just started lifting itself back up. And he said, no, that's not what happens. He says, what happens is the rain and the snow, they fall, and when they fall, what do they do? They make it bring forth. It says, well, they do not return there, but they water the earth, and they make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In other words, a, a land that is in uh, drought season, when it rains or when it snows, it comes down and it brings forth vegetation. It waters the drought or it waters the, the needy land and it brings forth vegetation, right? There's a beauty, there's a life, there's a birthing. Or, and then what it also does is that vegetation then produces something, food for the eater. In other words, it brings like a, a general or a corporate beauty, but it also brings an individual satisfaction or nurturing or provision. It takes care of both the earth and it takes care of the individual. And the contrast or the comparison, not contrast, the comparison he's making here is that that's how the word of God works. 
He says this, so shall my word. In other words, like rain or snow from the heavens coming down and making the vegetation and the earth beautiful and bringing sustenance to the individual, so too will my word do that. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Some of you have heard this verse said it this way. It will not return void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, not even the enemy in all of his tactics and opposition can stop it. Okay? It says, my word will go out. And when it goes out, when the word of God goes out, what it does is it, uh, there's a corporate beauty uh, that rises up and there's an individual sustenance. I see this all the time around here. People will come to me and they'll say, Stephen, um, we just did this as a couple. Stephen, this has been worked out in my life. And, uh, and they didn't go to individual counseling sessions. We didn't sit down with them and walk them through. It's not that those things are bad. Sometimes you do that, right? And you go to the word of God. But they, it was simply happening just because they were present on Sunday morning receiving biblical teaching and the word of God does not return void. And so the word of God comes in and it was watering and it was feeding the soul. And then the natural response was the fruit of the spirit and obedience comes out. Friend, this is why we have to be uh, filled with the Word of God. This is why we do need to sit under consistent biblical preaching. It's why we need to be reading the Word of God on our own. It's why we need to be reading the Word of God with others because the Word of God does not return void. This is also hopeful. Some of you, you have prayed the Word of God over children. You have spoken the Word of God. You got those kids into uh, in church when they were younger. And I would tell you, hold on to the promise that the word of God does not return void and let it rest on them, pray through them, pray for them. But the word of God is powerful. It is an unchanging but alive word of God. Isn't that amazing? That the word of God can both be unchanging but also living. That, that the word of God, it cuts to the soul, uh, uh, that the word of God can both simultaneously challenge and convict and also transform, motivate, and inspire. And what happens in the Christian and what happens in the Christian nation and the Christian culture is that the word of God is so prevalent, it's like spouting uh, or sprouting up vegetation all over. And for the Christian, oh, when you are just absorbed in the word of God, absorbed in the word of God, what does it do? It will bear fruit. It will bear fruit. And so that's the first. Number two. Number two. The, the, the enemy's playbook, um, it's strategic, and so it like builds on itself. Builds on itself. Verse five. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. I am totally in the wrong verse. Okay, that was chapter 55. Also a good verse. Isaiah 59.5. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Another way of saying this one would be, be careful, little mouth, what you eat. If you remember that song growing up, be careful, little ears, what you hear, right? 
Be careful, little mouth, what you eat. In other words, be careful what you consume. Be careful what you consume in your soul. Here's the, the lie or the corrupt culture. It says they hatch, they weave. Deeds of violence are on their hands. Now, uh, these, these verses are clearly like metaphors. They're trying to help us understand Satan's playbook. They're trying to help us understand the tactic of the enemy. And, and he says this, it, it, it's deceptive. We just learned that in the first. It's going to be rooted in deceit and despair. But he's saying this, that they're going to they're gonna weave it and, and they're going to hatch and, uh, and, and they're going to form or birth or create. And they're going to do it in such a way that you don't even know what's coming. They're going to try to disguise it. How are they going to try to disguise it? Well, uh, it's going to be disguised like a spider's web. And so you ever like walking around your house and you don't see the spider's web, right? You walk right into it and then all of a sudden you're tangled up in it. If you remember the old, uh, I guess it's old now, the, the uh, Lord of the Rings movies, right? When Frodo gets caught up in the spider's web, and, and then what does it do? It entangles you. It captures you, right? Uh, but what's the other thing about the spider's web? Sometimes you look at them, and, and you look at you see it in the light, and like, that is beautiful, right? And uh, you're almost like mesmerized by it. Uh, and so there's a, uh, there's a uh, almost like it, it comes out of nowhere, or, or there's a mesmerizing uh, uh, element to it. We're like, well, that's, wow, that's beautiful. And you're like drawn to it, right? Or the other one, he says, it's like an egg. And, uh, and it's like you, you, you wake up in the morning to, to make yourself some eggs. And, and you get up to the egg and you go, oh, what a beautiful egg. I'm going to take this egg and I'm going to make myself an omelet out of this egg. And you go to crack the egg and out comes a viper. How comes a viper and the, and the viper, attack, like, like, like Paul in the New Testament, right, at the end of Acts, the viper attaches, and, uh, and, and when the viper attaches, then the poison seeps in. What's the idea? The idea is, of the egg, is this, that the egg is clothed or cloaked um, to, to, to be something that you should consume. I love eggs. And you're like, yeah, the egg is good to eat. But what's in the egg? A viper. That's a, like an extreme example, right? What's he saying? He's saying there are theories, philosophy, thoughts, foundations of the enemy that are going to be mesmerizing. That are, that are going to be um, uh, that are going to be like so concealed that you don't even see them, and then all of a sudden you're trapped in it. That are going to look like they're good to eat. Does this sound familiar, by the way? Genesis 3? Oh, that looks nice. Oh, that sounds nice. They're going to look like they're good to eat, and then when you go to take a bite, it's poison. It's poison. It's poison. And what the enemy does then is in all of these different tactics, and it's showing us that the enemy, uh, the word cunning is often used to describe the devil in the scriptures, that the enemy being so cunning, he will use all three of these tactics when, they're, uh, when they need to be eaten. I mean, then a couple years ago, didn't many in the church buy into this and start eating the egg, the viper's egg of social justice? Oh, that looks nice. Yeah, no, we're supposed to be for justice, aren't we? Yeah. Oh, we're supposed to be for uh, uh, ending racism. Of course we are, right? Not that racism is going to end because the sin is always going to prevail, by the way, okay? But we're, yeah, we're supposed to be for these ideas, right? And what happened? Oh, like a viper's egg. The church just like ran to these uh, things that at their foundation were coming from an unbiblical position and it consumed people like poison, like poison, Right? 
The enemy does this. And he uses these things. And, and the enemy, he's been up to this since the beginning in the garden, right? Uh, we saw Satan emerge, and he had a contrary perspective, right? He looked at Eve, and he said what? By the way, the lie of Satan, his primary lie has been the same from the beginning. And it has been what? God isn't God. You should be God. That's been his primary lie from the beginning. God isn't God. You should be God. And then we can track the progression of this. 200 years or so before Christ, there was a guy by the name of Epicurus, and uh, Epicurean thought, which has then uh, progressed, I'll use that word intentionally, has progressed over the last 2,000 or so years. Uh, at the root of Epicurean thought was a contrast uh, to the idea of the God, uh, of God. And, and, and Epicurean thought was rooted in the idea that, no, we should be God, and we should get rid of God. And if there is a God, God is bad, and humanity is good. And then that thought then became the prevailing thought Right? Or the, it has always been the main competitive thought. And that through the centuries, I'll skip a lot of centuries, then re-emerged in the French Enlightenment, right? And the French Revolution through Rousseau. Then the German rationalist thinkers grabbed on it uh, in the 1900s. That then prevailed and permeated through American thought in the American church and our seminaries and our universities. It gave way then to, um, uh, to many other thoughts that then became uh, modern progressive theological liberalism and modern progressive liberal thought uh, uh, as it exists today in our country, and all of it at its root was the idea, God is bad, man is good, we should be God. And then what did it do? It clothed itself. It mesmerized people. It mesmerized people um, by putting on clothing, right? It's a, the man won't wear clothes. It's, it, it wore clothing. And its clothing was called things, right? Like, um, like Nazism or socialism or communism or Marxism or, uh, or, or critical theory or all of these other things. And it was just clothes. It's all the same stuff. It's all the viper's egg. It's all the web. It's all of the spider's web that people look in and they get trapped into it. And then when they're trapped into it, it is soul-sucking and destructive. And, and, and here's, by the way, you, you, you test the theory and a philosophy by its fruit. And you look at all of those theories and philosophies, all with the same root. God is, God is, God is dead, and, and, and man is, is God, right? And you say, where did they all lead? Every one of them. All of these thoughts. Where did they end up? Two places. <laughs> Death and enslavement. Where is God's way of thinking supposed to lead? Jesus tells us. It's supposed to lead to life and freedom, right? And so what do we have to do? We have to be very careful. In, in, in fact, what we have to do is we have to build our lives and our foundation, I would say the foundation of our, our church, the foundation of our lives, the foundation of our families, the foundation uh, of culture on, on something completely different. Instead of building it on the empty philosophies of the world, let me read Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Uh, if you were going to memorize a, a passage of scripture, this would be one. Okay, it says this, Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in him, rooted and built up in Jesus, and established in the faith. And the idea of established in the faith is this, that you and I are always consistently being established in our faith. Our, our roots are going deeper into Christ, and the deeper our roots grow, the more established we are in Jesus. That we would be established in the faith, just as we were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And you were taught, and you still need to be taught. Each and every one of us are always in a place where we probably have something to teach someone else, and that we need to keep being taught more and more and more, right? And, and then as we are taught more and more, we're established deeper and deeper. Then he goes on to say this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. 
What, a, what, a, what, a, what an interesting thing for Paul to say there. And by the way, we live in a world right now uh, where, where there will be Christians and they'll be like, oh, I believe in this kind of thinking. Uh, I believe in this kind of philosophy. Uh, I, I, uh, I believe in, um, I, I can entertain the word of God, but I also, also entertain all of these other ideas. Paul is literally warning you right here not to do that. He's saying, be careful about philosophy. Be careful about empty deceit. Seems almost like a direct tie back to Isaiah 59 there. Empty pleased, empty deceit. According to human tradition, where will these competing ideas come from? From humans, not God. From human tradition, but where are they really coming from? He says, according to human tradition, okay, that's layer one, but what's layer two? According to the elemental spirits of the world. Not according to Christ. Let me translate. Where are, they, where are they from? From your father, the devil. The idea there of elemental spirits, he's saying this. He's saying this is demonic thinking. This is, this is demonic influenced thinking that would lead us down these paths. And what they want to do, like a, like a spider web that entangles us or a viper that poisons us, what it wants to do is it wants to capture us. And they wanted to then capture our thinking. Um, I've recommended this book before, but I'll recommend it again. Uh, it's a book called Fault Lines by Vadi Bakum. And great book. Highly would recommend uh, everyone to read it. And it does a really good job. He also just released another book called Ever Present or Ever Loving Truth, something like that. Um, just look at the word Ever Truth, Vadi Bakum, okay, and you'll be able to find it. Uh, and, and these are great reads right now because they're really insightful uh, to, to the world that we're living in right now. And, and, and these elemental spirits of the world, these demonically influenced thinking, wants to capture us. Uh, let me ask this question. Uh, you ever, like, so we went on uh, vacation to Utah last year, uh, and every once in a while when we'd be out there, you know, you'd see a little insect, and we're in a place that we're not used to, and, and you look at the insects, and you look at them, and you go, I, I just don't know what that is, so August, maybe don't eat that, right? Um, and so what do you do? You grab your son, you're like, all right, I'll get, like, oh, let me come over here, let's not eat that thing. Okay, now, there are certain other things that I know are bad, all right? Like if I saw a viper, uh, and then I saw a brood of vipers, okay, I wouldn't grab my three-year-old and be like, hey, Augie, go play with the vipers, see what happens. Like I wouldn't do that. That, that, would, be, that would be bad parenting. And I would suggest that almost every one of us, we would not send our children to go play with vipers. In the same way we would not send our children to go play with vipers, let us not go send our children to be discipled, educated, trained, instructed by vipers. If my son was in the presence, let me just say this for a second. If my son was in the presence of vipers, I would be hyper vigilant. And I would stand by those vipers with a baseball bat. <laughs> and every time, every time they tried, I would hit that viper with that bat. Because you will not, with your demonic-influenced philosophies, poison my child. That's my responsibility. The other thing I would do is I would be very careful to know who I'm voting for in school board elections on Tuesday. Yeah. 
All right, number three. Number three. Oh, let me give you this verse real quick, too, because I think it's great. Matthew 4, 4, but Jesus told them, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If we're not supposed to eat the adder's egg, right? If we're not supposed to eat the viper, what, what are we supposed to eat? The word of God. We're supposed to consume and consume and consume and consume the word of God. Sitting under biblical preaching, reading the word of God on our own, reading the word of God with others, catechizing our children, right? Teaching them the word of God, teaching them the word of God, teaching them the word of God. Eating it. Our soul needs it. Number three, verse seven. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. So here's what happens next. It starts with they're going to have a, a, a strategy of deceit and evil and lies, right? And then what's going to happen uh, is they're going to try to birth those lies into uh, a culture. They're going to try to dress them up. They're going to try to make them mesmerizing or deceptive or make it so you can't see it, whatever it might be. And then what they're going to do, uh, once that has been consumed, what's going to happen is their feet are going to run to evil and they're, they're going to be swift to shed innocent blood. Okay, we've already talked about this, obviously. The most innocent blood that can be shed is the, the blood of the, the preborn and the unborn, right? But it, but it doesn't just stop there. Another way this plays out is we're going to call those who are guilty innocent. We're going to call those who are innocent guilty, right? We're going to be swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. In other words, all that they will do will lead to despair, violence, and destruction, and it might not look like that at the beginning because the enemy is smart. And the enemy doesn't get up and say, hey, here's what I want to do. I want to kill everybody. The enemy gets up instead and says, uh, hey, workers, let's, 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 let's rise up, right? This is Mark's uh, original idea, right? This leads then to taking over a nation and the, and the death of what, 100 million people, <laughs> right? You don't start with the end game. Right? You start, uh, and, then, and then what does it do? It bursts, and it increases, and it goes out, and it advances. And the, the evil of it, the death of it, the destruction of it, uh, you see the most of it uh, as it continues to grow. And so he says, here's eventually where it'll go. They will run to evil, and, uh, and they're swift to shed innocent blood. Their feet run to evil. Now, um, good news, particularly for some of you, because you have the nastiest, ugliest feet in the world. Okay? And so if that's you out there this morning, did somebody amen that? That's funny. Okay. Um, I can make your feet beautiful, and you don't even have to pay 50 bucks for a pedicure. Here's how you do it. It says your feet, their feet, run to evil. They're, they're quick to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of evil all the time. By the way, um, this, this verse, it's like reminiscent of something. And, and, and if you've read the Bible, it reminds you of another verse. And the verse it reminds you of is in Genesis chapter 6. And the verse in Genesis chapter 6 is about how evil has prevailed in the world. And, and their thoughts, it says, their thoughts are evil continually. You know what this is preceding? The flood. It's preceding the flood. Now, God promised he's not going to destroy the whole earth again with the flood, right? But he never promised that he wouldn't destroy a whole culture with one. Not with a flood, but just um, with a flood of deceit and lies and death. 
These verses, they remind us of each other because he's saying this is the wave. This is the flood of destruction, like, like, like sweeping through something. By the way, this is really interesting, um, just so we're clear, because the, the devil, in his deceit and in his lies and in his deception and, and all of his tactics, he tries to confuse things. And we're seeing this right now um, in a very clear, um, very clear, like almost like just like this is so easy, cut and dry what is good and what is evil. We are seeing ambiguity and confusion reign. And we're seeing this in the Middle East right now when, when we see pundits and we see people and we see this was one of the most alarming stats I've seen in a long time, that 25% of 25 and unders in America are pro-Hamas. Amazing. It's, it's amazing, by the way, because those same 25% are also probably pro-LGBTQIA+ on one hand, and then on the other hand, which if they went to the Middle East, they wouldn't even have that other hand because they'd cut it off, right? But on the other hand, all right, on the other hand, they're pro-Hamas, and these two, uh, like, like, I mean, that they're so diametrically opposed, but they have a common enemy, and what's the common enemy? Truth, right? It's a common enemy. Common enemy is truth. By the way, the word Hamas is used two times in the Bible. Did you know that? And one of the times it's used in the Bible is to describe the type of evil, violent, environment that existed in the world prior to the flood. And what was God's strategy for Hamas? <laughs> the same that should be the strategy right now. Wipe it out. Right? That's it. That's it. That's it. If you are one of those 25-year-olds who are confused, you've bought into the lie of the enemy. Some of us have struggled with the flood, by the way. We've struggled with it. We've thought, well, this can't be grace. I don't understand. Imagine an entire world, potentially billions of people pre-flood. Imagine an entire world controlled by Hamas, raping children, the elderly, torturing them, murder everywhere. Is it possible? In, in, in America, we've been so sheltered from this, right? And now that we look and we see it, we go, Okay, hold on. Maybe there is actual evil. Maybe evil can get so bad that a gracious God ended it and restarted. Maybe instead of letting children just be raped nonstop, maybe this is uncomfortable to talk about, but it's reality. Okay? God said, no. No, no, this is not why I created humanity. Not to do this. And so we started over. All right? And now we're, we're seeing snapshots. I think we are seeing snapshots right now <laughs> in an ancient word in Hamas in the Middle East that is a reflection of what the world looked like pre-flood. Okay? That's one group of people. It's one group, right? And, and their feet are quick. Their feet are quick to run to evil. Why? Because they love it. They love evil. They love death. They love death. Right? For a while, I know some of you were like, oh, this is awesome. I haven't seen any vote yes signs. Uh, I really think they just, they just forgot to, uh, to print them. They were just a little bit late to the game. And for a while, I think there was hope. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe Ohioans are, are better than we thought, and, uh, and people are just kind of embarrassed to put out a sign that says, hey, I'm pro-killing babies. Right? Um, but then we saw them all start popping up. Why? Because he who hates God, Proverbs says, loves death. Just does. 
I had this funny conversation a couple times this week. People are like, hey, I, uh, I saw some houses that I had a whole bunch of um, uh, Halloween decorations. And I said, yeah, and I'll tell you what else you saw. A vote yes sign in the yard. Why? Because he who loves death loves death. That's one side. Here's the other side. Uh, Paul writes about it in Romans. Romans chapter 10, okay? All of you ugly feet people, here's your chance. Romans 10, 15. Is that right? Yes, it is. And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Friends, those of us who are in Christ, we are of the clan of beautiful, feeted, footed, I don't know what the right word is, people. I love my grandma. She, uh, she passed earlier this year. I, I told a little story about that. And uh, she's up in heaven right now, and I don't know if they're allowed to watch or not. Um, hopefully she's not watching somebody else if she is, okay? Um, <laughs> I love my grandma. Near the end of her life, she was on the, on the, the union floor for 40 years and uh, grew up very poor in West Virginia. I know she was all that kind of stuff, right? Guys, I love my grandma. By the end of her life, her feet were so nasty, all right? And, 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 and the thing is, She'd show me every time I went over, all right? She's like, oh, Stephen, look at this new one. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> Grandparents, quick tip. If you want them to keep coming over, just don't show them your feet, all right? But guys, in the same way, my grandma's feet were the most beautiful thing in a different way. Because every time I went over there, it didn't matter how big this church was, it didn't matter how many sermons I had preached, she never, ever let me leave that house without reminding me of the good news of the gospel. Every time. Like I was still seven. The book here is telling us that there is a difference. That when, when the, the kingdom of darkness, when, when those who are caught up in the lies of the enemy, when their feet start marching. It is the march of death. But the opposite is true, that when the feet of the church and the feet of the people of Christ, when their feet start marching, it is the message of life. It is the boots of life, that we are the carriers of the good news of the gospel, that when you walk into a situation, you are now bringing life, and you are bringing hope, and you are bringing the good news of Christ with you, and your feet are carrying that message. I wonder if in the, uh, in the spiritual world, like when Jesus started getting close to the demon possessed, when Jesus started getting close to the dead that he was going to raise, like if every time he started walking, if the demons could see the light just radiating off his feet. And friends, we can't see into that world, but it is true for us that when we show up, when we step into the situation, our feet are carrying the message of life. And so be life carriers. Can I say this too? Is a, some of you, you need to repent of your Eeyoreism. You need a little more Tigger in you. He's alive. He, there's, there's good news. Jesus is alive. Jesus is in charge. Jesus can change the situation. All right? 
And as Christians, we should be the most optimistic people people know. We show up and they're like, man, it's been like this forever. <laughs> Let me tell you what Jesus can do. Let me tell you what Jesus can do, all right? We bring life when we show up on the scene, okay? That's number two. Or no, that's number three. Number four. Number four. Verse eight. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. By the way, they told me because it was daylight savings time that I got to preach an extra hour. So, <laughs> the way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. No one. Hey, we believe the word of God or we don't. And the word of God says this. If you walk down the devil's path, there is no peace. And so when people tell you, yeah, no, I'm doing fine. I'm doing good. They're lying. You cannot walk down the devil's road and know peace. Or if they know peace, it is a deceitful, uh, uh, almost like demonic peace that is making them think that that is peace. When it's not peace. You ever had like a, a piece of food and you ate it and you thought, man, I don't really like this kind of food. And then somebody gave you that same type of food, but it was really, really well made and you ate it and you go, wow, I love these. There are people who are eating the food of the enemy and they think that's all peace is. It makes me sad to think of somebody who's walking down the devil's path going, I'm at peace. Oh, friend, if you think you're at peace on his path, your understanding of peace is so sad and shallow because there is a true peace, a peace that passes all understanding. There is a peace that you can have regardless of your circumstances that is a true, deep peace that is a fruit of the Spirit. Oh, that tastes so much better than what you have eaten or what you think peace is. The reality of this is it's saying this. They do not know peace. No one who treads on them knows peace. I've, I've used this example before, but does anyone look out at our modern world and say, you know what, with all of the confusion and the craziness, at least our young adults and our college students seem like they're really at peace and restful. <laughs> no. No one looks out and like, this generation is just, just an at-peace generation. So satisfied in their souls. I'm making fun of the young generation. I'm mourning for them. Oh, no, there is a peace. That's not the peace. What will they do? They will make their roads crooked. Let me explain this briefly. The roads don't just become crooked. They will make the roads crooked. In other words, they will intentionally deceive and destroy, and they will take it, and they will make it so crooked that it is confusing, and that no one knows where to go. They will, they will intentionally screw it up. They will take what is supposed to be straight and make it crooked. Can I give the most obvious example? They will take what is supposed to be straight, and they will make it crooked. Sexuality. 
They'll take what is supposed to be straight, and they will make it crooked. And they will say, this is the path to peace. And then after they win that battle, what will they do? They'll say, they'll, they'll add to it. And so all of this gender confusion stuff, they'll tell people, like, listen, they'll, they'll take what is supposed to be straight, male, female, they'll make it crooked, and they'll say what? Oh, if you transition, we'll find peace. They'll make it crooked. Why? To destroy. By the way, even the term straight, this is just a prediction. Uh, even the term straight, I think it'll be erased from our common vernacular. Why? Because it assumes that there is something that is straight and accurate. And that, that'll, that'll no longer be acceptable. And so you'll get rid of the term, right? You'll get rid of the term. That way, there's no standard. There's no standard. This is what they would do. This is what, this is, this is what the enemy is up to. We've seen his playbook. So what does Jesus say? John 14, 5 through 7. I'll wrap up here. John 14, 5 through 7. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? How can we know the way of peace? How can we know the way of life? How can we know the way of truth? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Jesus says, if you want to find life, and if you want to find peace, and if you want to know what the straight way is, or the, uh, Jesus says the one way, the narrow way, uh, and the narrow path, if you want to know that, there is a way to do it. It is to follow Jesus and Jesus alone. You just follow Christ, and you follow Christ, and he will walk down the path, and as Christ walks down the path, there will be no turning to the left and the right. There will be no circles. There will be no confusion. It will not be made crooked. It will always be the straight path of truth because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And at the end of following the path of Christ will be what? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And what is the enemy then? He's the opposite. He's not the way. He is the lie. And he is death. Right? We have to see. When Jesus was saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he was making a, a, a very clear contrast to what he was not and what the enemy was. And so, my friend, what an opportunity we have to be the good news of Jesus Christ, the beautiful feet. Because they, in here, of course, is the imploded culture. Yes, but what did we learn last week? The church failed first. And so what do we learn uh, now? That we have a deep love and a deep compassion for all of those who are on the path of crookedness to run and to rescue and to be the beautiful feet that says, come on to the straight path. It's following Jesus. What a great, what a great mission we get to be on. Some of you today, you might be in Christ, but maybe you got off track and you hopped over to the crooked path, would you hop off of it and come on back? Maybe there's something in your life. You're doing it your way instead of God's way. Repent. Come do it God's way. It's so much better. And maybe you've come to peace about doing something your way instead of God's way. Let me tell you something. That is not a biblical peace. That's the enemy. And he's trying to, he's trying to like, like, like sing you to sleep. I'm waking you up right now. Run. Repent. Do it God's way. Hey, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We pray this morning that it will not have returned void, but that it will instead bring vegetation to our souls. And Father, that it will produce fruit, energy, 
productivity now for us in the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's message. For more information, you can visit Experience Redemption on Instagram or Facebook for updates, service times, and ways you can get connected. Want to partner and support the work of Redemption Church? You can give online at experienceredemption.com slash give online to explore your giving options. We also stream services on both YouTube and Facebook Live, so be sure to join us and share your experience. Thanks for checking out the podcast. We will see you soon.